What's up, Revolution? That was weak. We actually had to pull out more chairs for all of you. Be louder than that. What's up, Revolution? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm wearing pants today. It's just, for those of you who are new, that is a, that is a thing for me. Uh, I wear shorts every day because I have no common sense. And uh, the Lord sovereignly decided that the crotch of my pants was going to tear out in midweek. And, uh, and this is all that I had left because for some reason I own one pair of shorts at a time. I don't know what my problem is. This is all that I had. I, I don't like it. Actually, some guy, uh, some guy that goes to Christ Community Church named Dean, he's a sweet man. I love this guy. He took pity on me and he actually sent like a care package style box with three pairs of used shorts in them because <laughs> he saw me post on Facebook about how I had torn my pants. So I really appreciate that dude. But it's neither here nor there. This weekend was Valentine's Day weekend. How did that go for you guys? For real? It was that bad? Oh my goodness. Oh, that sucks. Alright, I only got a few things to say about Valentine's Day. One, if you're not married, I hope that you honored God with your body and that you were abstinent. And I really mean that. I was actually praying for you guys, um, that you guys would stay strong in the faith. And if you are married, I hope you had a significantly less abstinent holiday than I did. Um, you know, you do you, do you on that. That is, that is sanctioned by the Lord if you're married, so I'm proud of you. Um, I heard some woos, probably from a married guy. Um, But Valentine's Day, right? So this means a few things. Uh, For me, personally, and a couple of things this weekend. One, men everywhere spent way too much money on chocolate and flowers. And then some men take these beautiful 12 roses that are pink and that they spent good money on. And they take them to their fiance's house where there are three cats. And did you know cats eat flowers? Did anyone know this? This was news to me. They tear them up. They don't care how much money you spent. They could care less. I'm trying to forgive these animals. Like, it's going to be by the grace of God because I was super mad. But Autumn let me eat some of her chocolate. I I bought the chocolate for me, if we're going to be totally honest here. Like, she's about this big around. The chocolate was all for me. Um... Right, so that means that we spent too much money on flowers and chocolate and stuff like that as men. And then actually something new for 2015 with Valentine's Day is Hollywood struck yet again, right? Producing softcore porn with an awful plot that encourages women to be in abusive, controlling, bondage-style relationships. That's packaged as a love story. Well, that's stupid. Like, I don't, like, so I'm glad that you're not laughing because I really mean this. Like, I have a little soapbox to get on. Fifty Shades of Grey is garbage. I'm not going to harp on that for too long. Seriously, like, uh... I've talked to you guys before, most of you know that I'm a recovering pornography addict. I decided, let's see what the hype's about, not with the film, but with the book. So I cracked the book open in Kroger. Awful idea, right? I turned, like, beet red after reading, like, no more than six paragraphs, and I was just like, this is incredibly terrible. One, it's just written badly, like a seventh grader could have written that book, and she was a Twilight series fan anyway, the chick who wrote it, so we can write her off pretty easily. It's just garbage, right? Seriously, it's just pornography written down. Women, don't buy into that kind of stuff. God called you to more than that, right? You're not an object. You're not someone that's meant to be abused. That kind of junk, just, I'll get off my soapbox now. Don't go see that film, and if you did, repent, (laughs) right? That's all I'm trying to say, all right? But Valentine's Day, right? In the United States, it's all about spending time with your lady or spending time with your man, depending on what gender you are. Um, I want to make that distinction here because we are Christians. Um, But have you ever thought that you had the person that you're with, um, have you ever thought that you had that person pegged out? Like, I know what they're going to say. I know what they're going to think. I know what they're going to want to do, right? And then you find out you were wrong. 
I'm talking about misconceptions, ladies and gentlemen. And this actually happened to me this past week. My fiance, Autumn. Some of you guys don't know her. Autumn is a beautiful girl. She is a ballerina. Like, I'm not making this up. Like, she actually does ballet. Like, point shoes and, like, all the stuff that hurts. Like, the chick from Titanic. You remember that scene? Um, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> right? But she's a ballerina. She, uh, she likes to put on, like, circus-style makeup for her shows. And she's really good at it. She's super artsy, right? She likes to make arts and crafts, like scrapbooks. Like, uh, I can't think of any other stuff. I'd rather poke my eyes out than help her make these crafty things, but like I will, cause I love her. Um, but that's what she's, she can be pretty girly. Um, but then something happened this week. So I go to her and I say, Autumn, what do you want to do for Valentine's day? And I just cringe. Cause I remember how girly that she can be. And I was like, this is going to be something that makes me feel super emasculated. I'm sure. What are we going to do? And, uh, and she hits me with this. No lie. She goes, well, I, I want to go to dinner and can we watch American Sniper? <laughs> yes! <laughs> this is the one, ladies and gentlemen. This is why I'm going to marry this woman. <laughs> I was shocked. I couldn't breathe. It was awesome. I realized how in love I am. Not was. I am. I am. <laughs> right? I was surprised. Right? She said something that I didn't expect. Right? Because I forgot. Like, I had a misconception because I haven't. I got a lot of time to hang out with her. I forgot that she's essentially, like, has all the characteristics of a man that wants me to hang out with her and all the characteristics of a woman that makes it not a sin for me to marry her. So, like, we combine those two, and we get Autumn. And I'm super, super excited about it. Um, But like I said, I thought she was going to say one thing, and I was completely wrong. I had a misconception of who she was. Now, check this segue out into the sermon. Last week, we talked about who Jesus is, right? And we came to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, all right. Now, what we didn't talk about, but we're going to get into a little bit this evening, is that Jesus' mission is not what the disciples think it's going to be. They have a misconception about who Jesus is. And in this text that we're in this evening, we're in John, or not John, we're in the Luke series. What is wrong with me? Uh, we're in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27 this evening. It's going to be up here on the projector behind me, so don't worry about it. Um, we're going to backtrack a little bit and talk about some stuff we talked about last week. But so you know, there's Bibles out there. We don't expect you to use them right now because they're super dark in here. Take those home with you. There's little blue New Living Translation Bibles. That is our gift to you if you don't have one, or the one you have is really hard to understand. Um, But Jesus is going to clear up some misconceptions in this text about what the Messiah's life is going to be like. It's not what we think it's going to be. It's not what the the disciples thought it was going to be. And then Jesus is going to tell us what it's going to cost to follow the Messiah. And it's hard. It's going to make us cringe. We're not going to like what Jesus has to say. At least I didn't really like what Jesus had to say, but it doesn't make it any less true. All right, so what I want us to do this evening is I want you guys to ask yourself the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Right, kind of like that dude in the video was talking about, David Platt. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it consist of? What does it look like? You know, because I personally think too often um, in, in westernized Christianity, in the United States especially, we think that go, uh, going to church on Sundays or when you feel like it or praying whenever you need help or whenever you're in a really bad spot and just being nice to people is what makes up a Christian. Right? Just this general niceness with going to church once in a while. Maybe read your Bible every once in a while. Repost and press like amen on Facebook to all those stupid things that come up in your feed. Anyone else get those and it just makes you want to die? No, I'm the only one. I hate those things. One prayer equals one like. How about a prayer equals a prayer? How about you just pray for the person? Um, Anyway, sorry. Um, But we're going to see Jesus. I'm I'm getting off my soapboxes. Uh, We're going to see Jesus call us to something much deeper than just that superficial kind of Facebook Christianity. 
right? He's going to call us to something much rad- like radically different and radically against our nature as sinners. He's going to call us into a completely different kind of life that we're not going to like, but we're going to see come the end of it that it's going to be completely worth the cost. It's going to cost us a lot to follow Jesus, but it's completely worth it. So let's check out Luke chapter 19, verses 18 through 27. Let's see what he says. Verse 18. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say that you are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. And then he, Jesus, asked them, But who do you say I am? And Peter replied, You are the Messiah sent from God. Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anyone who he was. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. And I want to take a, I want to take a break here for just a second. This, this always struck me as very, very, very strange whenever I would read the Bible. Why would Jesus, who gives us the Great Commission later on, Um, in the Gospels, to go and make disciples of the nations and go and tell people about what he's done on the cross with his life, death, and resurrection. Why would he tell his disciples while he's still living, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah? It kind of seems like it would go against his whole mission here. Um, So this always threw me off. Back to the misconception thing we were talking about. The disciples had misconceptions about what it meant to be the Messiah, what the Messiah was going to do. Right, a lot of Jewish people back in Israel at this time, they were super oppressed by the Roman Empire. Uh, they had been exiled to Babylon, brought back. They'd been through a lot of hard times, and they had this promised Messiah that was going to come and restore God's people, that was, was going to restore Israel. And he was going to do all this stuff. And what the, a lot of the Jewish people had done is they had redefined kind of what this Messiah meant to do, that it wasn't so much about atonement for sin or or bringing Gentiles into the nation of Israel and restoring God's people to right relationship with him, but they thought it was going to be, this Messiah is going to be a warrior king, that there's going to be a physical uprising with the nation of Israel. We are going to throw down against the Romans. We are going to throw down against anyone that tries to oppose us, and this Messiah is going to assume a political throne as king, and Israel is going to be the dominant nation in the world. That's what they thought. That's what they thought that Jesus was here to do. And Jesus straight up tells them, don't tell people that, <laughs> right? Don't tell people that because that's not what I've come to do. You cannot, like you got the title right, I am the Messiah, but you cannot proclaim who I am. You cannot proclaim what I've come here to do until you understand what I have to do, until you understand what it really means to be the Messiah and what it's going to cost me and what my mission actually is. And that mission was to live a sinless life and to die a substitutional or substitutionary death in our place, suffering God's wrath for us. That was Jesus' mission, to reconcile human beings back to God the Father that they had so gladly rebelled against. That was Christ's mission. That's why he says, I have to be rejected. I have to die. All right, Jesus essentially says this to the disciples. You think that it's all about political authority here. You think that you're going to gain something because I'm the king. You're my disciples. You're going to be like my right-hand dudes as we rule over the earth. And what Jesus is saying is that's not right. This is not all about you and what you want. This is all about me and my mission. And Jesus says the Messiah's life and his mission is all about submitting to God. This is what God has prepared for me to do. I must suffer. I reject all worldly comfort. I I, I reject anything that's going to conflict with me being obedient to this. That is my mission. But then Jesus says this, in exchange for this submission, in exchange for him carrying this out, that he is going to be raised from the dead to glory beyond glory. 
right? And then he's gonna, we're going to see what he has to say next. And he's going to tell us that our lives are going to look a lot like his if we're going to follow him. But verse 23, let's pick back up. Then Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. So after laying down super heavy truths to us about what the Messiah's mission is, that he will die, but he will come back from the dead, something that the the disciples had never heard before a concept they had never associated with the Messiah. Like a lot of times we miss how heavy of a statement that Jesus made. I'm going to die to people who had never considered that Jesus was going to die. They thought this Messiah was going to establish a kingdom that would, a physical kingdom that would never go away. So Jesus hits us with this weighty teaching about his life. And then he goes on to lay an even more weighty teaching on us about what it's going to mean to follow him. We don't get this kind of message very often, right? Like um, in the American church, I would, I would argue this. Uh, we usually get what I call the light side of Christianity, which like, I'm not dogging it at all, where it's all about heaven and it's all about reward and it's all about forgiveness, which are central tenets of the faith. And I would never, ever like, try to belittle those things at all. Those are great. It's forgiveness that keeps us going. It's forgiveness that gives us right relationship with God. It's the reward of heaven that we're striving for um, that, that helps keep us going so that we can be obedient. And we're going to see more of that here in a little while. But Jesus is laying on us the darker side, the heavier side that we don't like of what it means to follow him. And what's crazy is before he bids anyone to come and follow him as a disciple, he lays out a couple of things for us to consider. He lays out two things, actually. uh, And we're not going to like either of them. This is going to be real. I didn't like them. You probably won't either. The first thing that Jesus says is turn from your selfish ways. Or other translations will say deny yourself. Right? Doesn't that make you indignant? Am I the only one? Like... He literally just called all of us selfish. Like, maybe we didn't catch that. Um, It it should hurt, right? He calls us all selfish, and we really are. Like, follow me on this. I was thinking about this. I was at a wedding, and there's cake and stuff. This didn't happen to me, but this has happened to me before. All right, you're you're in line for the cake, and you've been eyeing this one corner piece that's just full of icing. Anyone else icing fans right here? Oh, yeah. But but you're eyeing that one piece. It's like 20, from 20 feet back, that's mine, and you're in line, and you're just waiting. You're getting really impatient because you're selfish. And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, this snot-nosed little jerk four-year-old kid just cuts up in front of you and takes that piece, and you're like, oh, if you were 10 years older, I'd beat the brakes off you right now, you little punk. (laughs) Some of you aren't laughing, but I know you. Everyone likes cake. We're Americans. Let's be real here for like five minutes, all right? And I just realized I said that I would beat up a 14-year-old over cake. (laughs) It's not true. It's not true, right? But we're selfish. We really are selfish people. Right? Check this out, and maybe you'll think that I'm wrong, but I think that I'm right, obviously. I would say 99% of all the things that we do, like good things that we do for other people, it's either to earn a favor, right, to make us look good to other people. Maybe it's out of obligation because we feel like that this person has earned a favor from us, or it's to make us feel better about ourselves, I think that's why we do the majority of the good things that we do for other people. It's for some selfish reason. Think about it. It hurts. It should hurt. I'm glad because it's true. And we, I, I've been beat up with this. I am a selfish individual. But I, I would actually argue this too. That the greatest problem of the human race is selfishness. 
Think about war. Think about greed. Think about poverty. Think about theft. Think about violence. Selfishness is the root problem of everything. Sin is selfishness. That's exactly what sin is. It's complete and utter selfishness, right? Think about this. We don't, we don't want to be told what to do. We want to dictate our own morality. We turn like into Eric Cartman from South Park. Like, I'll do what I want, right? <laughs> some of you don't know what South Park is. I show that I'm getting older than some of you in here, whatever. Um, right? But we want to live for ourselves. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We want to tell us what to do. Right? It's all about us. It's the job that I want to get, uh, where I want to live at, the house that I want to get, the spouse that I want to get, the school that I want to go to, the stuff that I want. It's all around us, and it's all about us. It's about our dreams and our goals. And don't you dare try to stop me, because I will wreck you. That's our mentality. That's the American dream. I'm going to get what I want and get out of my way or get ran over. It's all over Top 40 Radio, for the record. That's why I don't listen to radio. It's garbage. Um, but this selfishness goes right down. Aside from just how we want to live our lives, it, it, it shows how dumb the selfishness can make you. It, it turns us into these people that try to want to save ourselves. Right? Most people will, will agree that they have done something that God did not like. That they have sinned, that they have rebelled against God, that he has given a command for them to do something, and they've said, I'm going to give you the finger, and I'm going to do it my way, because it's my morality, it's my life, I want to do everything the way that I want to. And then they tend to think that at some point in their life, they're going to do a big turnaround and just start doing a lot of good things and make up for all the bad things that they've done, and essentially save themselves. That's selfishness. I'm going to do it. It's all about me. I will save myself my way, not God's one and only way through Jesus. Selfishness. All sin is selfishness. But the gospel, right, the core of Jesus' message, that he has taken our sins on himself, became sin, and suffered God's wrath for us, cuts into the core of selfishness. You know, to, to accept the gospel, we have to accept the fact that we cannot save ourselves, that we are helpless, that we are dead in our sin, and it's going to take the Holy Spirit doing something in us supernaturally to make us believe the gospel. We're completely helpless this belief that only Jesus, with his perfect life and perfect obedience, and then substitutionary death on the cross in our place, suffering what we deserve for our rebellion against God, that's going to save us. It's this belief that we're only going to be counted as righteous in the eyes of God because Jesus is going to give us his righteousness when we die. Because we have none of our own right. You know, we, we have to admit that we are powerless to save ourselves. That's what the gospel does. It cuts to the core of all of this selfishness, and it makes us say, we don't matter. We cannot do anything. God must do everything. It puts everything on the shoulder of God to save us. So whenever we believe the gospel, the core of Jesus' message, selfishness starts to erode. It forces us to stop being so self-absorbed, to stop thinking about me and start thinking about God and his sovereign will to save us and accomplish everything for us because we could do nothing. That's what the gospel does, is it cuts away. So what Jesus does essentially is he first calls us to stop thinking about ourselves, to start orienting and, and posturing our lives around God. And we'll do that if we believe the gospel. So he's saying, deny yourself, stop being selfish, stop thinking about you, and start thinking about the God who saved you. And then Jesus tells us to submit to that God. That's his second command. He says, submit to the God that we are now reorienting our whole lives around. 
He says, take up your cross. That's the second thing that he tells us, take up your cross. Now, I'm a nerd, and I don't know how many of you guys knew that or not. Probably not, because I don't look like one. I look like some kind of serial killer, but whatever. Um, I am a history nerd. I love it. Um, and I thought this was super interesting. Like, here are some of like, the Roman connotations that like Jesus's, um people who were hearing him preach would have, would have gotten from this. Jesus says, take up your cross. Right? Whenever someone had been condemned to crucifixion, which is the root word for excruciating, like pain, Romans were really good at killing people and making them hurt. But whenever someone had been condemned to crucifixion, one of the things they had to do was they had to carry their crossbar that their arms were going to go up. They had to carry it to wherever they were going to be crucified to. And the symbolism behind that that I think people would have caught back then is this. This man who had rebelled against the state and done something bad enough against the government, who had rebelled against the king's law, is now being condemned to death. And this is complete and utter submission to that fate. I'm going to carry my cross showing that I have submitted to the authority of the government and I'm going to walk it to the place that I have to die at, that the government has said I'm going to die at. It's complete and utter submission to the Roman state. So whenever Jesus says this, he's saying that this is a daily submission to the sovereign God, the true king that we have so gladly rebelled against. That this is accepting our fate, whatever fate that he decides to deal us. And in our case, this fate is a daily death. Right? This, is, this is a call that Jesus gives us to a daily suicide. And I know some of you are thinking, dude, I know you like metal, but it's time to lighten up, right? Some of you don't think that's funny. Suicide Silence is a band that I like, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. Um, but this is what he's calling us to, metaphorically. That we are to die every single day. That If we're going to turn from our selfishness, we must, by default, turn to something else. It's turn to the God that we have been orienting our life around now. This is submission. To take up your cross. First submission to the gospel. To believe the good news that Jesus died in your place for your sin and was raised on the third day. And then to submit to everything else that God the Father had to say to us through Scripture. And this command is like super open-ended for the record. Like this command is incredibly open-ended in application. It covers everything. I'm not even going to be- begin to like list um, a ton of stuff. But essentially it flows from self-denial. And this command to submit to the authority of God makes us say this. God must direct me because I cannot direct myself. That's what this submission says. I don't know what I'm doing. I trust the sovereign God to lead me and tell me what that I'm supposed to do. Right, so we ask life questions, right? We ask questions like, where do I go? What am I supposed to do? Like, whatever. And then we see God answer, just so you know, uh, tell people the good news about my son Jesus and serve other people wherever you're at, wherever that I send you. That's your mission. That's the two big things that I want you to do. Right, but then we ask more questions, right? We ask, you know, how should I feel? How should I feel about this thing that I saw on the news? How should I feel about this thing going on in our society? How should I vote on this issue? How should I talk? How should I do whatever? And we see God responding in Scripture. And the question really that the Bible asks us whenever we ask these questions, okay, if I'm going to submit, how do I feel? Well, how does God feel? That's submission. I don't have an opinion anymore. I don't. Full submission is, well, what do you think? Well, what does Scripture say? Regardless of whether or not I agree, regardless of how I feel about it. Again, God must direct me. I cannot direct myself. 
You know, this is full submission. This is a submission where we prayerfully consider everything that we do, everything that we say, which I struggle with, and everything that we think in accordance to God's word. This is a submission where we realize that our lives as individuals are over. Like I said, you don't matter anymore. We've become completely dependent on God and what he wants for, my, for our lives. And brothers and sisters, this is going to suck. Right? I'm just being real with you for a minute. Like, it's death. It's painful. It's not going to be a good time, right? Anyone ever watch UFC? Four men? Thank you. I don't watch UFC. I've watched a little bit, but I was hoping to get more of a response from you guys. Whatever, right? Has anyone ever seen some people wrestling and then someone gets put in a submission hold, like a Kimura or like a triangle choke or something like that? Like their arm is just in this unholy position that it should never have been in ever. And you're watching that and you think, being on the receiving end of that would be awesome. Like, that looks like a really good time. If that's you, then you probably are the person that's in all that bondage stuff from Fifty Shades of Grey, and that's whatever. That's, that's for you, right? What I'm saying is submission hurts. Submission to God hurts. It's not often fun. Right? I'm not saying that it's not worth it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't come to a place where we gladly submit to God because that's what he wants but it's not often fun. Submission to God goes against our grain as who we are as people because by nature we are children of wrath. By nature we are sinners is what the Bible tells us. This is going to go against everything that we are. So basically what Jesus has done is he's saying with self-denial and submission, he has painted just a gruesome picture of what it looks like to follow him and he says, you still want it? That's what he does. He tells people to count the cost in other places in scripture that we're going to be looking at a little bit down the road, but he says... Are you down? Is this what you want? And my family, we own a store uh, in Minford called Mule Town Mini Mart. Shameless plug. Come buy hot dogs from me. I'll buy your lunch, just for the record. I will. Um, all right, but whenever we hire someone, whenever someone comes to us and says, hey, dude, I want a job, and we don't just, like, throw away their um, resume because, like, we know them. Um, <laughs> That sounded mean. But whenever we don't do that and they make it through the next part of the process where they're going to come and do an interview with us, um, we paint the worst picture ever of what it looks like to work at the store. That's what we do. Like, we try to scare them. We say, okay, man, some days you're going to have to get up at like 4 a.m. so you can get here at 4.45 and you're going to work like 8 to 10 hours. Other days you're going to work from noon to 9 and your whole day is going to be shot. You're going to work in the deli dealing with food and that's just not fun. And you're going to work the cash register and you're going to have to clean. And if you have a day off and we call you, we expect you to come in. And you only get so many days off a year. And we just really pounded into them like how rough it can be to work for us. And then we ask them, you still want the job? And if they say yes, they know what they're in for, right? We were fair. We warned them. We told them. I think that that's what Jesus is doing with us here. He's saying, this is what it looks like to follow me, and it's not going to be a bed of roses every day that you wake up. You're not going to be like, yay, submit to God. I can't hate people anymore that have really hurt me. Right? It's not going to be like that. But Jesus says, if you're down, follow me. He gives us these two commands and then says, follow me. Because whenever you're doing the first two commands, you are effectively following Jesus. Then and only then, whenever you are submitting daily to the authority of God and denying yourself and orienting yourself around God, then and only then are you actually following Jesus. That's what he says. I think that a lot of the times, and I worry because I'm, I'm sure that there are people in every church, including this one, where people think that they're Christians and yet they submit nothing of their lives. They take the American dream and they wrap it up in a church. And they think that that's following Jesus. 
It's not true. That's not what Jesus says following Jesus is. It's not saying a prayer and thinking you're good to go like the guy in the video said. That's not what it is. He says, do you do these two things? Because if you do not, you do not follow me. But Jesus knows this. He's the creator and sustainer of all life. He knows us. He knows how dumb we are. He calls us sheep. Sheep are really stupid. If you've ever been to a farm, sheep are really dumb. He knows how dumb we are, and he knows that we will not want to give up what control that we think that we have over our lives, which, for the record, we don't have much control at all over our lives. If our will does not match up with God's will, nothing happens. It's God's will that matters. Ours is subservient. It doesn't matter. We don't really have any control over our lives. God is the sovereign one, not you. But we desire to have control over our lives. That's what we want. Like I said, sin is selfishness that Jesus tells us to forsake. And we really like being in control. We like thinking that we're in control. We think that we're the sovereign ones. We think we're the ones that get to make all the decision calls. And it's all around us, man. Like it's in movies, right? Like Minority Report, unless I'm... No one's seen Minority Report, whatever. Uh, Like in movies, it's in books that we read. It's in music that we listen to. It's politicians say it. It's all, you can do what you want to do. You can achieve your dreams. You can do whatever because you're the one in control of everything. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. If you try to stay in control of your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll find it. You'll save it. What Jesus is saying to us is, This way, with your control, with you at the helm, your way, your will, your life, that's death. Right? It's like that we're like we're going towards our own destruction. We're leading ourselves toward our own fate, and yet we don't even realize it because we're too blind to thinking that we're in control of everything, and that's the way it should be. So Jesus starkly tells us that our way is nothing but death, and yet he offers us life. He says, Give up your life to save it. You know, he gives us a reason to live this submissive life that goes against our grain. Essentially, he offers a trade. He offers the greatest trade that you could have ever wanted, ever. My dad trades cars and guns and four-wheelers and stuff because he's a redneck. But, like, this is, like, a better trade than anything that he ever saw. This is, Jesus says, give me 60 to 80 years of self-denial and submission, and I'll give you life forever. That is an unbelievably solid trade. It does not get any better than that. He says, lose this life and get a better one. Get a true life. And just a side note, I'll tell you guys this. This is primarily referring to whenever you die, eternal life. But I think that it also can refer to life right now. When you follow Jesus, whenever you submit to him, you get joy. Happiness is temporary. Joy is unshakable. That I know that I am in the hands of a God that will not let me go. And no matter what happens, it's part of his plan for my life. And I am being made more like Christ, come whatever may, no matter what kind of suffering that I have to deal with. That I have objective meaning in my life. God has an actual plan for my life. Life is not what I make it, but it is an objective meaning. There's peace and comfort in the suffering that comes, and my suffering is for a reason. There's no such thing as senseless suffering for Christians. All of this true life, true meaning, true purpose right here and right now, and then eternal life later. He offers us everything. Yeah, but then I think Jesus really pushes the idea home with what he has to say next. And this is what hit me like a ton of bricks whenever I reflect on my life before I knew Jesus when I was an atheist, doing what I wanted to do, thinking I was in control of my destiny and I was it. I was my own God. Jesus asks this question, what is this life now, here and now, worth anyway? He says, what's it really worth? 
That's a, that's a heavy question, man. What is this life worth? And we tend, stupidly, to believe that this life is worth a lot. Let's be real for a minute. This life is super enticing, right? You can get a lot of money if you work hard enough. You can get uh, a lot of comfort, right? You can spend your money on comfort, like comfort stuff, like a nice car, nice clothes, nice house, whatever. You know, you can, if, you, if you don't go against the grain and don't stand up for anything, you can be incredibly popular if you're politically uh, correct enough. Right? If you are good-looking enough and are willing to put yourself out there, you can have all the sex that you could want. Right? You, could, you could be famous if you catch the right breaks and are willing to work. This world offers us a lot. It tells us that you can build your own kingdom. You can be your own king. You can be your own queen. Whatever. I don't want to be sexist. I'm not funny. Right? You know, you can build your own kingdom. You can get your hot spouse. You can get the job that you want. You can get some kids, right? You can retire. You can do you. You can do whatever you want to do. And that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Like, let's be real for a minute. Like, my sinful nature says, dude, that sounds awesome. Do what I want to do when I want to do it. You know, YOLO, right? Shoot me in the face. Why did Drake do that? Because white people have been saying that for like the last five years, and I think it's got another good five years left in it, and I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> right? Why did you do that to us, Drake? But God is sovereign. He said that that was going to be a phrase that we get introduced into our lives. Help me, Lord. Right? But there's no pressure in this kind of life. No pressure whatsoever. Everything is your call. You are your own God. But at what cost are you going to be your own God? That's what Jesus says. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are destroyed yourself? What did you really benefit? What cost did your kingdom, being your own God, really cost you in the end? And again, this is primarily referring to whenever you die, but I think it refers to destruction now as well because we can just look at history and see the people with the most stuff, with all the things that we strive for, with all the things that we try to attain, becoming the most miserable people once they actually get it. I wanted to be a rock star more than I wanted to breathe. And yet we have Kurt Cobain who killed himself. He achieved everything that I wanted. I wanted money. I wanted nice stuff. I wanted to play music in front of thousands of people. He got that and killed himself. Amy Winehouse, overdose. She did the same thing. Marilyn Monroe, overdose. Philip Seymour Hoffman, phenomenal actor, overdose. We see these people being miserable. And that's because we make poor gods. We make awful gods. Whenever our dreams and our goals, if if God decides that he's going to actually let us get them, often our expectations and the reality of the dream don't match up and we're left wanting something more. It's because we've been created for something more. You know, but I think primarily, aside from just saving us from destruction in this life and all kinds of disappointment, Jesus is truly painting himself as the judge of the entire universe come the end of time. And he says, this destruction, this is an eternal destruction. This is a very literal hell he's referring to. Where people who reject the gospel go. Where people who don't trust in Christ for their salvation go. Because they've said, I'll be my own God. I'll save myself. I'll handle it myself. He says, that's what it costs for you to gain the world. That's what you get. That's because, like I said, to gain the world and keep your comfort and keep your control, you have to reject Jesus. You have to be ashamed of his message. That's what it means to be ashamed of Jesus. 
is that you reject his message. You say, I don't think it's worth it. I think it's shameful that you would ask me to do that. You reject the good news that Christ died in your place for your sin because you want to keep control over your life. And I want you to consider this. Jesus is saying, in order to keep control over your life, you must have control over all of it, including your salvation. And good luck with that. You want control over everything? Save yourself. Good luck. You cannot save yourself. So what did you really gain? What did you actually gain? What does it really amount to? And this reminds me of uh, the first chapter of a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. All right, we see King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, write this book, right? He had, like, I don't know how many hundreds of wives and concubines, which sounds awesome but never ends up well for anyone in the Old Testament. He was a king. He had power over life and death for the people who lived in his kingdom. He was rich. He knew he had achieved everything that we could have ever wanted. And what does he say about life in the first chapter? He says, everything is meaningless. Everything is pointless. Everything is vanity. And what is he saying? He's saying, we all die. Everyone dies and then nothing matters. What good is your control whenever you stand before the God who is in control of everything? What good is your money, your cars? What good is clothes? What good is sex? What good is fame? What good is your will and your way? What good is that whenever you stand before Jesus, the judge? What will it amount to? You've exchanged 60 years of being your own God for an eternity separated from the true God. What did you gain? You lived your life all about you and nothing about Jesus, and now you're going to be judged based off of only your life and none of Jesus' righteousness. Why would we do that? It's, it's, It's complete insanity that we would do that. It's the worst trait I've ever heard of. But here's the thing. Here's the flip side to this. For those of us who would actually follow Jesus, we gain everything. We gain everything. Let that sink in for a second. You get it all. I'm not preaching prosperity stuff. I'm talking about later. I'm not talking about here and now. I'm talking about when we die. Right? So when we deny ourselves and our wills here, we will gain life forever. There will be no wrath for us from God the Father in the life to come because Jesus has already absorbed it. We will suffer for a season, but then God will raise us to glory just like he did Jesus. That's what Jesus promises us here. Our lives are going to reflect Jesus' life, right? That's essentially what Christ is saying here. We're going to suffer, but we're going to suffer for a purpose. We're going to submit to the thing that God has for us to do in our life, our mission. And then we're going to be raised to glory forever with the Father, Son, and Spirit to never end, to never suffer again. To all of our submission, be glad for sin to be something of the past that we don't do anymore. That's not even a presence around us. So hear this. Whenever we follow Jesus and we truly follow Jesus, we not only get to follow him into the suffering and the submission, but we get to follow Jesus into the best part. We get to follow him into glory forever with the Father. That's why we can push forward to the goal. There is hope. There is light. Paul knew that. That's why Paul writes this to us in Romans 8. He says, And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, This is why we never give up. 
Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. That is worth dying daily for. That's, that's it. That's the exchange that Jesus offers us. That's, give, that's worth giving your life up for. Like I said, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost you your will. Whatever you want to do doesn't matter anymore. It's all about submission to God. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be painful. But when eternity comes and we see Jesus, it won't matter either. Whatever we suffer now is nothing. Whatever we have to do now is nothing. These are the words that Jesus spoke to people who would like, attempt to follow him. So the question that we have to ask is, will we turn from our selfish ways and turn towards submission? Right? Or are we going to be ashamed and are we going to reject this message because of what it might cost us in this temporary fleeting vapor of a life? That's the question. You know, so I would ask you, if you're, if you're not a believer, if you don't trust Jesus for your salvation, if you're not a Christian, think about this. Trust Jesus. Believe that he died in your place for your sin and be forgiven. That's all it says. There's no prayer like that guy said. Jesus is not telling you to pray a prayer and go home feeling good about yourself and then nothing about your life changes. He's saying, follow me. Submit and follow me. So if you don't believe in Christ, I I would beg you to do so and begin to follow him today. And if you want someone to talk with you more about this or pray with you, come find me after the service. There'll be a couple people over here by the couches as we play music. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. And if you are a Christian or you've been calling yourself a Christian and you mentally assent to the fact that Christ died in your place for your sin, and yet your life shows nothing, that there's no submission, that you're, like I said, living the American dream wrapped up in Christianity and not denying yourself. Begin to submit. Begin to get into Scripture and see what God expects from His people and do so. Jesus demands that we respond to everything that He says, so I would beg you to respond. But I want you all to remember one thing. I want you guys to know this, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. I want you to know this. I want you to think on this. I want you to chew on this and take this home. And this is what I'm going to leave you with. Apart from Jesus Christ, nothing in this life matters at all. Let's pray. Father, you're you're better to us than we deserve. Because of our rebellion against you, we deserve hell, and yet you offer us life through Jesus. God, it's a, it's a costly life, but it's one that's worth it, and I thank you for it. Father, I pray that we take this message from Jesus to heart, and we actually begin to become disciples and actual followers of Jesus. I pray that you convict people who have not been submitting but call themselves Christians, and that you would bring someone to repentance who doesn't know you. Father, I pray that we begin to to take your call to die to ourselves daily. And we take it seriously, God. Put your Holy Spirit in us. Show us what you want us to do. Help us to get into Scripture and actually be followers actively of Jesus. I trust you to do as you see fit. I trust you to, to be in control of our lives, Father. And we love you and we're going to worship you because you deserve it because you sent your son to die in our place for our sin and we will worship you forever. 
I thank you for the cross, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.